This podcast is brought to you by the new Yahoo Finance Premium. If you're looking to take your investing to the next level, Premium has you covered. Try it free at yahoofinance.com slash premium. I heard about Wes Moore when David Saltzman, who was the prior CEO of Robinhood, was stepping down, and I asked around who was taking his place, and people told me Wes Moore, and I didn't know Wes Moore, but everyone started telling me about his biography and what an incredible guy he was, and, and that really is the case. Well, I've known about Robin Hood for a long time. I was actually the first journalist to write about Robin Hood going back many years ago for Fortune magazine, and it took me a long time to gain entree. At first, they didn't want to talk to me at all, and ultimately they decided to make Paul Tudor Jones the founder of Robinhood available to me and, and a number of other notables on the board. It's an incredible organization. It does a lot of great work in New York City fighting poverty and homelessness. Wes Moore talked about how big a problem poverty is. And just in New York City alone, it's much bigger than just something that that organization can tackle. It obviously requires the help of the government, most notably. And the government really needs to step up and do work here. They, they certainly try, but it's an, actually a sign of failure that poverty is growing in New York City. So Robin Hood can do some, but government needs to do more, and obviously the private sector can contribute as well. You know, Wes Moore is truly a singular individual. He grew up in some difficult circumstances, got in trouble. He grew up in some difficult circumstances, went to Johns Hopkins, became a Rhodes Scholar, after that was a captain in the Army, served overseas, and then came back and worked at Citibank, became an investment banker, and then decided he wanted to go and run Robinhood, a nonprofit. Robinhood, Wes, great to see you. It's great to see you, Andy. Thank you. So why don't we start out by uh, talking a little bit about Robinhood. Can you tell us exactly what Robinhood does? Yeah, so Robinhood is, uh, is, is 32 years old, and it's New York's largest anti-poverty uh, uh, nonprofit. Uh, and so one of the things we focus on, we say where poverty is either the cause or the consequence, we will find, we will fund. We will build uh, effective organizations that are addressing it. So everything dealing from housing to to education to mental and physical health to criminal justice reform issues. Really thinking about where poverty shows itself and the multitude of ways that poverty shows itself, Robin Hood will be able to be involved and be able to fight against the scourge that is taking place around the city. And so do you guys have programs yourself or do you fund programs? How does the organization actually work? So really the, the model program, the, the model of Robinhood is that it's both. Mm -hmm. uh, we both fund organizations, so we fund over 250 organizations throughout the city of New York in all five boroughs. Uh, so every single spot in New York City, Robinhood has involvement. But also, if there is a, an issue that we're trying to tackle, that there isn't an organization currently in place that is addressing it, Robinhood also has a history of being able to fund it and, and build it ourselves, where we find strong social entrepreneurs be able to fund the work that they're doing and be able to build out frameworks that we think have a scalable and, and really impactful potential to be able to address the problem. 
Where does the money come from, Wes? Uh, well, we have a collection of dollars that come from both, uh, you know, private in individuals uh, who have just given generously for, for all the years uh, towards Robinhood. It also comes from corporate support that we receive. Uh, and the, the really unique thing about Robinhood's model is that our board really covers down on all of our operational expenses. And so every dollar that comes to Robinhood goes directly into the poverty fight. Not a single dollar that people give to Robinhood will go towards uh, our operational expenses, lights, rent, uh, uh, salaries, anything like that. Our board covers all that, so every dollar that goes in, we really describe as the most effective poverty-fighting dollar that, uh, that, that you can put out. And the founder, Paul Tudor Jones, right? Hedge fund manager, wealthy guy himself. What was his idea behind founding this? Well, what was interesting, so in 1988, uh, Paul and, uh, and, and, a, and a handful of others were really predicting that the markets were going to take a turn. Uh, and, and they made investments and they, and they bet on this idea that they think, you know, that it's going to be a really complicated year in the markets. Uh, but they also said, they said, but if it's going to be a complicated year in the markets, do so you know who it's really going to be complicated for? People who are already living in poverty. Because for them, for people living in poverty, they don't have bad years. They have bad years repeatedly. And so Paul and, uh, and, and, and a handful of others got together and they just said, listen, we are going to create a foundation where the thing that we know is, because we look, use it for all of our investments, we know data. You know, they, they said, you know, when we make investments in companies, we use data to be able to analyze whether this is the right company to invest in or not. We should be able to do the same thing when it comes to our philanthropic investments. And so they initially started off with about $40,000 that they put into three different organizations that we started funding in, in Robinhood. Uh, and now Robinhood has dispensed uh, around $3 billion into the poverty fight and funding a whole collection of different community partners in different areas, but really staying with the same core ethos. Use data and metrics to be able to find and fund the best organizations, and at the same time, be able to attack this problem that frankly should be keeping all of us up at night. And that is a level of poverty that still does exist in such a wealthy, wealthy environment and understanding how do we address those disparities in a way that's not only humane, but in a way that we can actually make it a conclusive conversation instead of making poverty more tolerable. One thing that was always curious to me, Wes, about Robin Hood is that you're only in New York. And I always asked, if you guys are so good, and I think you do a lot of good, how come you haven't spread out to other cities? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think the model of Robin Hood has actually been very deliberate in that, where there are actually, if you look at the model of Robin Hood, the model of Robin Hood actually does exist in other cities now. So, you know, in the, in, in, uh, the Bay Area, you have Tipping Point. In Chicago, you have a better Chicago. In Memphis, you have Slingshot. In the, in the Twin Cities, you have the Constellation Fund. Uh, in Washington, D.C., you have the Lever Fund. So you have organizations that have built out with Robin's exact model, with our focus, and we've been very much open source with all of these partners as they're building their own organizations uh, because we feel like we can be great partners, but we don't necessarily need to expand because the challenge of poverty still very much exists here in New York. We've still got work to do here. The other thing, though, that is important is, uh, you know, we actually launched an initiative uh, last year for the first time in the history of the organization, something called Mobility Labs. And the lab stands for Learning and Action Bets, where we're actually making investments in five communities around the country, one of them including New York, but also including Baltimore, Maryland, uh, Northeast Pennsylvania, which is like Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, uh, suburban Chicago, kind of like the Cook County area, and also three areas in the Bay, uh, where we want to really understand the dynamics of poverty on an urban, rural, and a suburban area. Uh, because the truth is, is that poverty is not an urban issue. Uh, poverty exists in, in areas all over this country. So we want to be able to better understand what's working in other areas that we should be learning from 
and bring it into our work? And what's working in our jurisdictions that we want to be able to spread? And so the Mobility Labs initiative is an, is an initiative that we have with a collection of other foundations, but really trying to examine the, the, the interconnectedness of poverty and the interconnectedness of the solutions to it as well. So that's interesting. So you guys are getting a national footprint in a way by working with partner organizations and this new initiative that you have. Yes. So, um, you know, there's a bunch of um, NGOs domestically that have tried to fight poverty. Yeah. What makes Robin Hood and maybe this whole ilk different? Is it the metrics or what else? You know, it's... Um it's interesting because I think, uh, you know, we all understand kind of how, how inclusive poverty is. Uh, and one of the work, that, one of the things that we love about the work is in, in partnership with other organizations, in partnership with foundations, in partnership with community partners, is when people say, well, are people in poverty because of education? Or are people in poverty because of housing? Or are people in poverty because of transportation? Or are people in poverty because of, because of uh, 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 job, uh, you know, job reskilling or immigration issues? Oftentimes, the answer is yes, right? Poverty shows itself in every way. Poverty, poverty generally doesn't show itself in a singular fashion. And so one of the things I think is, uh, is, is powerful about the Robin Hood model is the idea that then we don't try to address it that way. We don't just say, well, let's fix education or let's work on housing or let's work on early childhood. Because the truth is that poverty is remarkably predictable. Poverty is remarkably sticky and poverty is remarkably uh, all-encompassing when it comes to how people have to feel it and address it and the trauma of it, how it sits on people's lives. And so really the way that we try to address our work is by saying, how do we then take a holistic approach to a holistic problem? And so we have organizations that we'll support in all those various areas. We have organizations that we'll support and that we'll build out that are touching on all those various points. And we, try, and, we, and we encourage collaboration. We encourage working together. We encourage kind of this idea of life stages, about how people are addressing it, because that's how people are living. And that's what I think is one of the, one of the unique factors uh, and one of the things that I'm really proud about that Robin Hood does is because we try to address poverty the way it shows itself. And right. that matters. So practically speaking, that would mean supporting early education, housing, nutrition, transportation, all those different facets, right? That's exactly right. It, it, it goes back to this idea of, you know, if we have a, we have a partnership with Columbia University to, and we created something called the Poverty Tracker. And really what the Poverty Tracker is, it's a longitudinal study uh, and a longitudinal examination of about 4,000 families uh, in New York that are, that are, you know, and looking at how mobility, economic mobility and poverty shows itself in very real ways over a period of time. Uh, one thing that we've, we've seen, even with the, with the poverty tracker, is this. Over 50% of people who move out of poverty every year will be back in poverty within two years. So poverty isn't something that you have a level of only upward mobility out of poverty. The problem with poverty, there's almost this magnetic pull mm -hmm. that then drags people back on singular life occurrences. Missing a train, getting docked hours at your job, a child getting sick, small things. Mm -hmm. And so really the way we try to approach the problem then is saying if we know that these are singular things that are putting people and keeping people in poverty, if we know that there's a multitude of different elements that even if you can get a child in a great school, if their parents aren't supported, it's going to be really challenging to give that child a level of upper mobility. Same thing, if you can have something where you can give a parent uh, you know, new skills or job, re job retraining, right. but their child is in a failing school, then what are we doing to actually create a level of upper mobility for the family on a long-term basis? These are the things that we really like to think about because we don't believe in making poverty more tolerable. We don't believe in making poverty easier on people. Right. We want to make sure that we can actually end it for that family. 
What is the budget at Robinhood? How much money do you put out there every year? So every every year, our, our operating budget, you know, hovers around the, uh, you know, hovers around forty million dollars. And every year, uh, we'll put out anywhere from, uh, you know, one hundred and fifty to one hundred eighty million dollars in both, uh, you know, in both individual uh, bespoke grants, but then also kind of the collection of how we think about the entire life cycle of unrestricted grants we make to our organizations. And uh, and you know, one of the things that you know that we really are excited about and proud of is the fact that every one of those dollars will go directly right. into the work. And you mentioned the board members that support, that underwrite the organization. Who are some of those board members? Well, we have we have uh, leaders in, in a variety of different industries, leaders in finance and leaders in, uh, in, in entertainment, leaders in education. Uh, I think one of the things that we really have been very, very blessed by is we have leaders in a variety of different uh, occupational spaces that are all focused on this issue of poverty. So whether you're talking about people in the finance industry, such as a, such as a, a John Griffin or a Paul Tudor Jones, mm -hmm. uh, whether you're talking about people who are in the entertainment industry, such as uh, the, the John Sykes or, or Steve Stout of the world, whether you're talking about people in education, like a Jeffrey Canada mm -hmm. or, a, uh, or, or, or a, 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 a John King, former Secretary of Education. You know, we have people who come from a variety right. of different perspectives and a variety of different life experiences that are then educated both how we think about the work, but then how we also come up with these variety of solutions. How many people live in poverty in New York City, West, and how has that number changed? So the, the, the absolute number is around 1.8 million people that are, that are living in poverty. And, 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 you know, when we're talking about living in poverty, we're talking about people who are, who are at about $25,000 a year for a family of four. Uh, and that's in New York City. If you're looking at the number of people who are right around that number, then you need to go in and throw another million plus onto that number. Um, one thing that we've, we've seen even with this poverty tracker data is that half of New Yorkers, 50% of New Yorkers, have been in poverty for at least a year over the past, over the past four years. Half of the city. And so when we're talking about poverty, you're really not talking about a small, distinct group. You're not talking about people in a specific borough or people who make up a, you know, a specific demographic. It's half of everybody that we see walking around. And that's the, that's, that's the thing about poverty that we know is just completely intolerable. But has the number grown? I mean, we, we hear a lot about wealth and income inequality. So it, it seems like it hasn't gotten better. I mean, and anecdotally, you see more homeless people on the streets, obviously California that problem has gotten extreme. It's huge. And, but it hasn't gotten any better here, right? Yeah. How has the number changed, say, over the past five or 10 years? Then? Well, it's, it's the same thing, even if you, you know, you're right, California has significant issues, uh, as does New York. I mean, the number of, of people who are homeless and housing insecure in New York has, uh, has just about doubled in the, in the past five years. Uh, so this is something that's a long-term challenge that the city is still continuing to face. Uh, one of the other dynamics that we've seen when it comes to poverty is the face of poverty also continues to change. Where, where if you look at the fact that we have a, a, a lowering unemployment rate, but that the poverty rate really hasn't nudged at all. Why what, is that? Well, what it means is that you're having more people who are essentially are the working poor. People who are working jobs, in some cases multiple jobs, and they're still living in poverty. And, and that's why there's this, there's this idea and this narrative about people who are living in poverty. So like, well, if they would just work harder or if they would just get a job. The problem is for the majority of people who are living in poverty, they do have jobs. Does that mean we should raise the minimum wage? It, it means we need to come up with a multitude of answers to include raising wages, yes. It means, it means that, that if you have people who are working a full day's work 
and still living in poverty, there's something fundamentally wrong with that dynamic. I mean, you could suggest even that that business is exploiting those people in the sense that they're getting paid, it's a legal transaction, yet these people are still not able to take care of themselves, right? It, it, it means that we have to really value work right. inside of our society. And, and when you have a situation where you have people who are working, in some cases, multiple jobs, and, and still not able to, to do the basics of supporting their family, we're not valuing work. We're not valuing effort. We're not being honest about what it means to be able to, to really support people in this environment. I mean, I think about my, my, my own mom. I mean, I was 14, it was, I was 14 years old when my mom got her first job that actually gave her benefits. I was 14. You know, I was 14 when my mom got her first job that gave her reliable hours, or when she only had to work one job, so not having to work multiple jobs. Uh, you know, no one needed to tell my mom that she needed to work harder. My mom would outwork anybody who would try to have that argument with her. But the reality is, is that the structures and the systems of work that we had in place were not giving her the breathing room in order for her to be able to balance everything that she had to manage. And so we have that same dynamic that's taking place right now where we, we have this, 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 this falsity that, that, you know, that if people just work hard right. enough that they're going to be okay. The statistics both and the anecdotes around it shows that's just not true. Our job is to help to fix that. You talked about your mom. I want to ask you more about your background. But I want to ask you about the political environment a little bit, yeah. Wes, because things have become so politicized. And do you find yourself having to avoid politics? I mean, is it kind of a tightrope a little bit with, say, your wealthy donors? On the other hand, you're trying to address the issue of poverty, or is it something that you find easy to cut across political lines? I, I find it to be imperative that we're involved in the policy conversation. Mm -hmm. there, we have policies that are putting people and keeping people in poverty. And so we can't lie to ourselves and just simply say we're going to, you know, grant make our way out of this. The reason we have so much poverty in our society is not because philanthropy hasn't done its job or philanthropy hasn't done enough. It's the fact that we have structures and systems that continue to allow this level of inequality to take place. And so when I think about you know, the fact that Robinhood uh, actually now has, has built out an entire, uh, an entire public policy element to our organization, it wasn't to, make, to do something new. It wasn't to, do, uh, to create a shiny new object. It was about the fact that we have a responsibility to be involved in the policy conversation. We are going to use data to be able to figure out where we land. You know, we don't make emotive splurges. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we are using our voice in a true and in a realistic way about how we're making our jobs easier. And so when we're talking about this work, I don't see how we can avoid being involved right. in, in policy. What are some of the policies you guys are espousing then? So, I mean, or you, things that need to be changed? Yeah, so I, mean, so I, I think it's everything from how we think about the allocation of dollars and supports of organization versus how are we thinking about supports for, for, for individual families. Uh, you know, we, we, we got involved, uh, for example, over the past year thinking about how we're supporting organizations that are doing work, you know, the vast majority of social service work that takes place within the city of New York and around the country is actually taking place by nonprofit organizations. Uh, and then oftentimes, if they are being contracted out,
out by the governments. Uh, it's you know not only is the payments come late, but the payments also are not on the equivalent dollar amount. It's about 80 percent, 80 80 cents of the dollar that they're being paid out for it. So being able to address those disparities does matter to us because not only are they our community partners, these are people who are fundamentally doing the work. It's they then are being backed up and backfilled by oftentimes philanthropic dollars and even bank loans. And so it's not fair to the organizations that are doing the work. How we're thinking about things like making adjustments to other basic supports like child tax credits and, uh, and, and SNAP. These are things that if, we, if, if you were to make any forms of adjustments on these type of frameworks and pullback, you could significantly increase the number of people who are living in poverty overnight. And so we feel like it's our responsibility to both push back on policies and adjustments that are going to most hurt those who are most vulnerable, but also be able to introduce and encourage policies that are going to create a true lasting level of sustainable mobility for our families. Do you think someone like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren is right that you know, billionaires are, are stealing from the system and it's a problem that needs to be addressed. I think for, for anybody who is willing to make poverty their issue, for anybody who's willing to be philanthropically supportive to an organization, because you know, if you look at it this way, um, there's about $700 billion every year that goes towards philanthropy, mm-hmm. right? Which is a real number. Um, about half of that number goes to universities. Half of philanthropic giving goes to universities. So you're talking about now, if you take that away, we now have about $350 million, uh, billion dollars mm-hmm. that's left over. Uh, if you take that number, half of that number goes to homes of worship and also to, uh, goes to homes of worship and also to hospitals. Right? So now you have about $175 billion of philanthropy that's left over that goes towards everything else animals, the environment, veterans, children, seniors, wealth inequality, and poverty. And so when you think about it that way, when you think about the level and the, and, the, and the size of the problem that we're trying to face, the fact that there are people who are willing to be philanthropic and, and, and give their, and put a portion of their giving, their philanthropy towards this issue, that's meaningful to us. Because not only do we feel that it's a problem that deserves attention and deserves a level of focus, it's a problem that, that frankly, you know, running this organization, uh, I, I don't have the luxury to say who should and should not be involved in this conversation. I need to make sure that everybody's involved in this conversation because all of us have a level of complicity for the fact that we have this problem. And so if that's the case, everybody needs to be involved in trying to find a solution to it. Would you like to put yourself out of business? I'd love to. I, I, I think that you know the reason that we have so many community-based organizations is because there's a breakdown somewhere, right? If, if I yeah, if why we, is that? Well, if we support yeah. if we support an organization, for example, that focuses on giving a quality education to a child, right? The reason they exist is because that child is not receiving quality education elsewhere. If there's an organization that provides housing support, if there's an organization that provides job training to people who are coming back from incarceration. If there's an organization that supports transportation assets for seniors, the reason is because something is not working. That that basic resource, that basic support is not in place. So this organization now feels a need to be able to fill that hole. I feel like when we think about our organization, the organizations we support, everybody in the social service space, our responsibility should be not just to address the very human problem that takes place right now, but also how do we make sure that we don't have to keep on fixing the same problem. How do we make sure we're not continuing to have to fill 
the same holes that exist, particularly when we know what the holes are. And so that's one of the reasons even I talk about, you know, the, the, the policy conversation. Part of the reason that we're involved in that is there's a policy breakdown right. somewhere that makes these things happen and makes these things real. There's a, um, there's a quote that I keep on my, on my desk uh, from Dr. King. Mm -hmm. And the quote says, philanthropy is commendable. But the philanthropist can never forget the economic injustice that makes philanthropy necessary. That, in many ways, is our North Star, where the philanthropy matters. It is commendable. It is life-saving in many ways. But let's not forget why we need philanthropy in the first place. Right. The reason is because there's a larger system of economic injustice that still needs to be served. Is there a role for the private sector? What what can I mean? There is a role, obviously, yeah. but but what role is there for big companies? You know, the Fortune 500 here. I, I think the, the the role of Fortune Fortune 500 companies is uh, is is big and broad and vast, right? Because it's not just about making sure that we are both hiring people and paying people fairly and and doing all that stuff, which is which is which is baseline. Uh, but there's also a role about how can they think creatively about their voice. How do they think creatively about utilizing the, all the other assets that they have in place? You have Fortune 500 companies that, that have assets in communities all over where they have a role in the communities that they are in and the communities that they're serving to be able to better support their communities. They have a role in the fact that when many of these Fortune 500 companies or just these companies at, at all, when they speak, people listen. When they speak, policymakers listen. And so the things that you're speaking about making sure that those things you're speaking about are not just the things that are going to impact your quarterly earning reports, but impact the community, impact your shareholders and the people who aren't yet shareholders. Impact the people that, that, are, that, you know, that, that hold equity in your company and those who can't afford to hold equity in your company. Making sure that the ways you're using your voice and making sure the ways you're using your influence are gonna have a larger societal impact to actually create a level of fairness and parity and equity in our large society. That's how they can be, that's how they can use their voice. So I promised you I wanted to ask about your background and you have a, you have a fascinating bio. And first of all, you had some tough times growing up, right? Yeah, yeah. no, it's, uh, uh, you know, I think about the thing that first moved me to New York. Uh, we were down in Maryland, and, and uh, when I was uh, almost four years old, my father died in front of me. And, uh, and so my mom, at that point, became a widow with three kids that she was going to raise on her own. Um, and this was not the life that she had prepared for or expected. This is the same mom who, I, you know, like we were saying earlier, you know, I was 14 when she got the first job, her first full-time job. Uh, and so she was having a really difficult time with the transition, and finally she called up my grandparents who lived up in the Bronx. My grandfather was a minister in the South Bronx. My grandmother was a school teacher in the South Bronx. And, uh, and we went to go live with them. And I had a really difficult time when we transitioned up to New York, where I very quickly you know, found myself in a, in a place in a society and frankly in a community that was chronically ignored uh, and neglected. Tough neighborhood. Tough neighborhoods. And, and the thing is, we knew it. It was an ignored neighborhood and we knew it. And so think about then the psychological impact on a child or on children or on families that are existing in that. Um, the first time that I felt handcuffs on my wrist was when I was 11 years old. And in many ways, what brings even this evolution into Robin Hood very much full circle was the neighborhood that I grew up in was one of the first neighborhoods that Robin Hood invested in. Hmm. And, and so it's one of the reasons that I take this role and this job so seriously. It's the fact that we have a collective responsibility to do something. 
And I think I saw it very much in my own life, in my own evolution, where people can say, well, it's great that you had a, a, a mom that fought for you, or you were willing to take advantage of opportunities or whatever. And the truth is, all that is right. My family was remarkably lucky. Uh, my, my family was resilient. My family, uh, uh, you know, we went through a lot, but we had each other. Um, but luck shouldn't be a prerequisite. Luck shouldn't be something that if a family doesn't have that, then their opportunities are not there. Uh, we have to create better frameworks for people that we don't necessarily have to have exceptions. I, I know I, I stand here today um, as a core exception to a lot of statistics, to a core, as a core exception to a lot of things that could have happened to me. Right. Uh, and that's the thing that motivates me because I can't stand exceptions. Our society shouldn't have them. Our society shouldn't tolerate them. That shouldn't be enough to help people get to bed at night. That we have to do a better job of actually be creating frameworks where, where, where promise can be promised to people. Right. And then you went to school, college, Back in Baltimore, yeah. So I so, so, for, so actually, first I went to a junior college. Okay. Uh, I first started off. I joined the army right out of high school. Okay. I went to a junior college, got my associate's degree at, mm -hmm. at a community college, and then from there I transferred to Johns Hopkins University. Right. And uh, which both brought me back to Baltimore, right. which I loved. Yeah. Uh, because we'd moved back to Baltimore when I was about fourteen years old. Right. Um, but then also I think gave me a different type of perspective oh, yeah. as to how I could think about right. the world and, and and my place in it. And so I, I after transferring from a junior college. Right. to go to, uh, to, to Hopkins, uh, I ended up completing Hopkins and getting a Rhodes Scholarship out of there. Uh, and so, and I think that from there kind of, you know, very much set me on a different thought process and a pattern about the type of things that I wanted to do in my life and the type of change that I wanted to make. Did you go back into the Army after that? I did. And then I you did. became an Army captain at I that did, point, yeah. right? Yeah, so I, I uh, in fact, I, I left for Oxford on September 23rd of 2001. So just a couple weeks after 9/11. In fact, I was one of the uh, we had one of the first transatlantic flights that was permitted to go, and um, and it was a pretty jarring experience because for many of the soldiers who I trained with and many of the soldiers who I did all my uh, all my basic training with, as I was getting ready to head off to England, um, you know they were getting ready to head off overseas too, but but hmm. to war. Right. Um, and I remember even having conversations myself and and some of the other army uh, folks who who got the roads that year saying, so should we leave? Should we go back with our units? Should we do this type of thing? And, and the Army was very clear. Where they said, uh, you're where you need to be right now. We're, we'll remember you. Right. We'll find you. But uh, you ended up serving in Afghanistan? And I did. In 2000, 2005, 2005 and 2006, uh, I, was, uh, I was in Afghanistan, uh, on, in the border region of a place called Coast, which is yeah. uh, on the border region of Afghanistan and Pakistan. Right. Uh, I was there with the 82nd Airborne Division, um, which was one of the more um, extraordinary experiences in my life because yeah. you got a chance to see people you know men and women who were just had amazing acts of, of, of heroism um, amazing acts of courage people who believe deeply in, in, in the hope of this country and protecting that the hope of this country and uh, and so I was uh, I was I was I was thankful for the chance to serve with with such remarkable people
And then you ended up going to Wall Street for a bit. I did. Right? Were an investment banker? I was. I was an investment yeah. banker. I, uh, also I a sharp elbow place, right? Also, also a sharp elbow place. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, it was interesting because I, I had a chance Worked to city. go Worked at City. I'm there. sorry. I interrupted yeah. you. Yeah. No, I had a chance, went to City mm -hmm. uh, and, and really had a, had, a, had a good experience and learned a lot and really figured it was something that I was good at. You know, I, 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 I was good at the data. I was, I was, a, I was a good banker. Uh, I, I, uh, but I also realized, you know, quickly, I'd spent about five years there, um, but I realized this wasn't where I was supposed to be. Uh, my career was going well. I was, you know, tracking and getting promoted. Um, but also, I think it was there that I realized that the things that I wanted to do, the things that I was, my mind continued to move towards, was this idea of, of service. And, uh, you know, I have a, a, a great mentor um, who I met there, a guy named Ray McGuire. <laughs> I know Ray. He's yeah. maybe running for mayor right now, right? I, 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 I he, he is, he's got a public servant's heart, mm -hmm. uh, and he's a remarkable man, and yep. one of the most important mentors in my life, still to this day. Um, and uh, and I remember having a conversation with him about it, kind of saying, you know, listen, Ray, I, I, I think I need to do something else. And uh, and I remember him looking at me, and first letting me know, saying, you know, just so you know. There is no like gap years in finance. You know, once you leave, it's it's not like you can just jump back in. It's complicated. And I, and I said, I get it. And uh, and I remember what he said to me. He said, you're ready, and I'm proud of you. Mm. And uh, and and gave me very much the uh, uh, the permission. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Sirwork.